On one occasion, that ends the reading. Thank the Lord for the reading today. Well, friends, please keep your Bibles at Luke chapter 10. We'll be working through those uh, verses. And if you like, I've um, put a few copies of the full transcript for those who find that easier to follow. So they're up the front, so please take one if you like. But let us turn to God in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word by your Son. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that this morning as we hear these words, that we won't receive them as just the words of men, but the very words of God himself. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have one question that you could ask God, what would it be? If you've got only one question you would ask God, what would you ask? Now, in this world which is so big, so large, often so confusing, often so crazy, I'm sure you would have many questions that you would love to ask God. Now, when I was a young boy, I had this young, inquisitive mind. I had lots of questions, lots and lots of questions. And I remember there was this one time when my youngest brother was brought home from the hospital. And I remember him being carried home from the hospital But there was something at that time that just didn't make sense in my mind because at that time I remember my mum having a big tummy. The baby was inside. Some of us won't. Some of us will succeed. Some of us won't. Some of us will get married. Some of us won't. Some of us will have kids through armpits. Some of us won't. Some of us will buy a house. Some of us won't. Some of us will grow old. Some of us won't. You see, all of us, we meet the same end. We all meet the same end if the Lord does not yet return. And that is an end that is sad, that is dark, that is lonely. In a coffin in the ground. There must be more to life than just that. There has to be more to life than just that. Now, last uh, Saturday, I attended a funeral, the funeral of my sister-in-law's father, This was the same funeral that Chris went to as well. He was a Presbyterian minister, a good man who struggled with cancer for many years and, of course, that struggle came to an end. But is that all there is to life, our funeral, our last thing in this world? Well, you see, this expert in the law in this story, he knew that this is not all there is, that there is eternal life. And he wants to know how. He knew that. There is eternal life. There is this life in heaven with God. Perfect life, perfect love, perfect peace, perfect justice, perfect life with the Heavenly Father where there is no more pain, no more decay, no more sadness, no more sorrows, no more burdens. You see, at that funeral, when I was listening to my sister-in-law's eulogy, it was clear that her father knew that as well. Her father knew that this is not all there is to life, that there is indeed eternal life. You see, he was a man, as I listened to this eulogy, he was a man who did not invest in the things of this world. It was actually quite moving. He's never been on an overseas trip in his 55 years, never been overseas. 
in his 55 years, never purchased a house. Now, to many of us listening to that, we think, oh, this was a man who did not achieve that much, did not experience that much, did not do that much. But you see, his eyes were not on the things of this world. He knew that this is not all there is to life, that there is indeed eternal life. He knew that. And so he was content, despite not having done those things. He knew that there is more to life than just this. He had eternal life, and he's got it. You see, the man in this story, the law expert, what did Jesus say? Well, Jesus said, you answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And so this was his big question to the Son of God. He had that opportunity. He saw the Son of God face to face. And his answer, well, he in fact knew the answer already. But what did he do? Did he go and do likewise? Well, instead of going and doing likewise, he tried to justify himself. Do you see that? That is, he tried to suggest to Jesus, I already do this, Jesus. I already love God. And I'm pretty sure I already love my neighbour. But just to make it clear, just to ask a clarifying question, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbour? Who is my neighbour? I'm pretty sure I already love my neighbour. You see, in his mind, as a law expert, as a Jewish man, he's thinking, my neighbours are my own kind. They are the Jewish people, they are my own kinsmen. They're the people I I find easy to love. Now, this is perhaps how we might like to think of our neighbours as well. If I have to love my neighbours, then I like to choose who my neighbours are. And they are the ones who are lovable, who are easy to like. They are the ones we get along with. Those are, they're the ones we have a common interest. You see, it's not the weirdos, not the strange people that are my neighbours. I like to choose who my neighbours are. And so this law expert, he's thinking, I'm justified here, Jesus. I'm pretty sure I already love God and I'm pretty sure I already love my neighbour. But then he, Jesus, answers with a story. A story which would have shocked all those listening back then. And a story which should shock us today. A story which would undo all they thought about earning eternal life. And a story... Stop briefly. Now, you would expect him to open up the door, come out and see what was going on. But no, he sped off, crushed her some more with his rear wheels. Now, of course, it was a busy marketplace and so you would expect there would be many people who would walk past, who would see the girl on the road and would go to help. Surely someone must have helped. But the first person walked past, pretty much ignored that girl in the middle of the road, walked past, continued on. The second person, well, the second person rode up to her on a scooter, saw her bleeding to death on the road, took off. The third person walked past, noticed her bleeding away there. He too walked past. Three people walked past. Fourth person did. The sixth person did. The tenth person walked past. The fourteenth person walked past. In total, 18 people walked past. The dying girl, bleeding to death in her own pool of blood, 18 people walked past and did not think to go and help. Did not think to call the ambulance. Did not think to call the police. 
Now, to make matters worse, there was another truck, another van, that approached her and went over her, crushed her some more. Now, when I heard that story, my heart was broken. I was outraged. How could people be so heartless? No pity, no compassion. How can people call themselves human if they act that way? No decency at all. But you see, the story we see here in the Bible was in one sense more shocking than that. You see, it's probably a bit more like this. Those 18 people who walked past that dying girl was not just your ordinary citizens. Everyone around you, not just the front row, but everyone. You see how Jesus redirects the question. And so Jesus was questioning, are you the neighbour? Are you like the Samaritan who is loving and compassionate to everyone, even an enemy. And so what this means is that love, you see, that Jesus teaches is not selective. You can't select who your neighbours are. Love is not selective, but love has no boundaries. Love is not selective, but love has no boundaries. And so in our final verse, Jesus says, Go and do likewise. Now remember his first question, how can I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well the answer of Jesus is you want eternal life. That was your first question. Well go and do likewise. Love in this way, love in this radical way. Now do you think that Samaritan went on and did this? Do you think this Samaritan went on and loved his enemies in this radical way, a love which has no boundaries. We well, say, I suspect he didn't. I suspect he didn't. I mean, he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. And now the question falls on you. What about you? Would you and do you love in this radical way? a love even for enemies, a love which has no boundaries. Well, I suspect, knowing you, knowing us, that we would try to. Of course we would try to love everyone around us. We would do our best at loving all those around us. We we would do our best at being the neighbour to everyone. We might even be that 19th person who helped that two-year-old girl. But now just say... It wasn't a two-year-old girl who was bleeding there in her own pool of blood. Just say it was the person who has looked down on you his whole life, a person who has abused you, who has hurt you, who thinks you as nothing, who treats you like you're rubbish, who thinks you don't even exist. If it was that person who hates your guts, who was lying there on the road bleeding to death, Would you still help? Would you hesitate? Would you think twice? Would your love still know no boundaries? Can you, like what Jesus says here, go and do likewise, even to an enemy who was dying? Well, I know I can't. I know I can't. I know my heart and I I suspect that you can't too. But you know what? There is one person who can, who could 
who would and who has gone and done likewise. And do you know who that person is? It's the same person who was telling this story. Jesus Christ himself. You see, the love of Jesus is one that knows no boundaries, a love that extends even to the enemies, the worst of enemies. You see, Jesus loved his enemies, those who ignored him, those who dismissed him, those who, do, who abused him, those who spat on him, those who stripped him, those who whipped him, those who crucified him. Jesus loved even those people. You see, enemies who were back then during the life of Jesus but enemies today as well. Now, the Bible actually put this, puts this quite bluntly. It doesn't hold back. The Bible is quite clear in saying that we're all enemies of God. We are not naturally friends of God. We are all enemies of God. And that's because we are people who have ignored God at some time. We have ignored his son Jesus at some time. We've treated him like dirt. We've treated him as though he doesn't exist. We've treated him as though he's not the true ruler and king of this universe. And so, we are his enemies. But you see, the love of Jesus extends even to us. And it's a love that goes beyond what the Samaritan did. I mean, what the Samaritan did was shocking. It was scandalous to love your enemy in that way to waste your time and to waste your money in that way. It was costly for the Samaritan to love. But you see, the love of Jesus was far more costly because how did Jesus show his love? The love of Jesus cost him his life. It was his death on the cross. The love of Jesus for sinners is one that cost his life. While we were sinners, Christ died for us and he did that to take our penalty, to take the punishment we deserve from God because of how we have been enemies of him. You see, this was what the law expert needed to know. And it's only when you come to understand this story of a beautiful girl who understood this love of Christ for her, understood it so well and so she went on and did likewise. Now, in 1960, here's a picture of Ruby Bridges. She was just six six years old. She was the first black girl to attend a white-only elementary school in the American South. Now, on the 14th of November that year, she was escorted, you see see it here, into the school by these federal marshals. Outside the school were these angry parents and citizens. They were shouting abuse her. She is not allowed here. She's black. All our kids are white. Now just imagine that. A six-year-old girl on the receiving end of all this hatred. How do you think she would have felt? I mean, how would you feel if that was you? Having so much hatred against you. Now, I'm not much of a crier, but I suspect if I was that girl, I would be crying. And so what happened? Well, she was escorted into the school by the marshals and then hordes of parents came rushing into school and took their kids out of school. 500 left school that day. You see, they did not want their kids to be around a black girl. Now, she couldn't understand why. She couldn't understand why. Why? Once inside, she sat at her desk but the classroom was empty. None of the parents allowed the kids to go into class, go into school. 
And so she had no one to learn with, no one to eat with, no one to play with. There was no one. But yet her teacher, Mrs Henry, she was a bit dumbfounded. She was unable to understand why this six-year-old girl who was on the receiving end of so much hatred could still remain so polite, could still be so relaxed and so hopeful in spirit. Everyone expected her to quit. One morning, her teacher, Mrs Henry, noticed Ruby walking towards school as usual. But then she stopped. She turned towards the crowd and it appeared as though she was talking to them. The crowd was ready to pounce on her. And she stopped talking talking, and then she went into the school, escorted by the marshals. Her teacher, noticing that, Mrs Henry asked her, what happened? Why did you stop to talk to that rude crowd? Now Ruby said, I, I didn't stop to talk to them. I wasn't talking to them. I was praying for them. You see, every morning, Ruby Bridges would pray for those who hate her a few blocks away from school. But that very morning, she forgot until she was in the middle of the mob. And so she stopped and prayed for her. And what we learned later was that she would pray for her haters before school and after school. And she would pray this prayer. She would pray, Please God, try to forgive these people because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. So could you forgive them just like you did those folks long time ago when they said terrible things about you? A six-year-old girl to respond... Psalm chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. And you can read it up there on the screen or you can follow along in your pew Bibles with me on page 1250. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their ears are itching to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you uh, for reading God's word for us this evening. Let's... uh Friends, come to God in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity today to read it publicly and to proclaim its message. Father, we pray tonight that your Holy Spirit 
will minister to our hearts, and indeed, especially to your servant, John. Lord, I pray that you would take me, Lord, tonight, use me for your glory and for your praise. For indeed, this is an awesome responsibility and a wonderful privilege to share your word with your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, John, Reverend John Huynh. Okay. I know that there are some young people here who are kind of waiting for that moment to call John Rev. So it is here now, John. Congratulations. Congratulations to you on this very special day with your ordination as a minister of the word and sacraments of the Presbyterian Church of Australia as a gospel minister. It is a special day for you and it is a day to celebrate. Four years at Moore College part of which was also study at the PTC in Sydney, plus two and a half years here at St. Stephen's, part of which was also study at the PTC in Box Hill, going through the trials for license, receiving the exit certificate, coming here to be with us for two and a half years, all up nearly six and a half years leading up to this moment. A long time. And so we celebrate God's grace and goodness to you in firstly bringing you to faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And then by His providence, that you've been set apart as the minister of the gospel, the word and sacrament of the PCA. Now there is no doubt that Yvonne, she's seated right somewhere in the middle there, Yvonne has also, we need to acknowledge the work that Yvonne has done, being a supportive and a wonderful wife uh, and a mother uh, to your children. Sure, I'm sure she's been a great support and encouragement to you. So, Yvonne, you also share uh, in this special moment as well. We don't want to forget you. <laughs> as many of us guys know, uh, behind every, I don't want to say successful, but whatever we do, we, need our, we, we do need our wives to stand and support and encourage us, especially in gospel ministry. And we thank the Lord for them. And so we pray for the Lord's blessings to you, to Yvonne, and to your wonderful three children, Esther, Caleb, and Ethan. Well, we offer John the opportunity to invite a speaker for tonight. And I said to John, who would you like to preach for this evening? And John said to me, well, I've spoken with Yvonne, and we would like you to preach at this service. So I am both humbled and honored for the privilege to do so. It is a great joy for me to work with John as our assistant minister and for us as a congregation here at St. Stephen's. Indeed, this is a very special, momentous occasion in the life and ministry of God's Word in this congregation to support two full-time ministers in the work of the gospel in this place. So I am deeply humbled and honored for the privilege to do so. So what is a minister supposed to do? What is a minister supposed to do? Well, quite interesting, but uh, Charles Swindle says about uh, his observation about the job description of a minister. He says this, The pastor is expected to be a walking encyclopedia of Bible knowledge, an expert on all the latest theological trends, a flawless public speaker, 
an inspiring executive leader, a servant-hearted shepherd, a gifted counselor, an authority on children and youth, a caretaker of the aged, sick, dying and grieving, as well as a dedicated husband and faithful family man. Wow. To get that, John? <laughs> wow. A massive list. And I think by no means it is an exhaustive list in any case. The pastor has many hats to wear and expectations to meet and roles to fulfill. So where do we start to get some idea of the job of a pastor? What does he do? Does he only work on Sundays? Or is there more to his work? Well, friends, tonight we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, a vital passage that gives us some clues and information about the job description of a minister. And tonight, I want to focus our thoughts on 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5b. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. John, there may be many thoughts and emotions going through your mind tonight. But I want to encourage you to remember three little words. Fulfill your ministry. And as we look at these three words, I trust that they will be both a helpful reminder and an encouragement to you as you serve him as a minister of the gospel. So fulfill your ministry. Let me unpack these three words and the obvious questions that come to mind are these. What is this ministry? What is this ministry that we're supposed to fulfill? What am I supposed to fulfill in the ministry that God has called me to do? Thankfully, the Apostle Paul has given us sufficient information here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 1-5 to that is of a specific nature to help us answer these questions. So now, before we go into the text, let me give you some background information. Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy was born to a Jewish mother, a believer, and a Greek father who was probably not a Christian. From his infancy, Timothy was steeped in the scriptures, taught to him by his mother and grandmother. Paul encountered Timothy on his second missionary journey in Lystra. And so when Paul arrived at Lystra, he heard the elders speak of a young man called Timothy. And Paul was really interested in meeting Timothy. And so, Paul and Timothy, they developed a close bond and continued in gospel service, where Paul saw Timothy as his son in the faith and as a trusted co-worker. And so Timothy traveled with Paul throughout most of his second and third missionary journeys. And at some point, during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, the Apostle Paul placed Timothy in Ephesus to lead the congregation as its pastor. And so Paul reminds Timothy to recall a very significant event in Timothy's life, namely, is setting apart as a pastor. And we see that the elders of the church and Paul did something that we witnessed tonight in the ordination of John. I, I'm sure some of us may not have seen everything that took place here because we surrounded John, 
But we laid our hands on him and we prayed for him. We set him apart, just as Paul reminded Timothy, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And then, again, do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Paul says that to Timothy. And what we see here is that the church collectively approved Timothy and set him apart for pastoral ministry by the laying of hands. And within this overall context and framework, Paul writes Second Timothy. It is Paul's last letter, written during his second Roman imprisonment as he was facing his imminent execution. And therefore it was a very personal an emotional letter written by Paul to this young pastor. Because Paul says this, For I am ready, already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now friends, before this happens, Paul gives a charge to Timothy and spells out to Timothy what he should do to fulfill his ministry. We have these words. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Notice here what we see in this passage. Paul gives this charge in the presence of witnesses, God and Jesus. It begins with a solemn charge. This word that is used here in the original has legal connections and can mean to testify under oath. And so Paul calls Timothy in effect to enter the supreme court, the high court. Of heaven and stand before God and of Christ Jesus to receive this solemn charge. This is serious business. And this solemn charge is given to remind Timothy that his ministry is to be carried out before none other than God and Christ Jesus. What an encouragement to Timothy. God and Jesus observe all that Timothy does. Fulfill your ministry, Paul is saying to Timothy, recognizing that indeed you have Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, watching over you. He reminds Timothy that Jesus will appear, that is his second coming, and he reminds Timothy of the fact that Jesus' kingdom will one day be consummated. For indeed we read in Revelation chapter 11, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and forever. So Paul is saying to Timothy, Remember, Timothy, God and Jesus Christ, they are your witnesses. And in the presence of them, in the highest court, I am giving you this solemn charge. And remember that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. 
we will stand before him, each and every one of us, and in particular those who are ministers, ministering the word of God, and give an account to him of what we have done. Secondly, remember as you minister that this Jesus is going to return. He is going to appear in his second coming. What a motivation. What an encouragement. Keep on in this ministry because Christ is going to return. And then thirdly, he says, remember his kingdom. That the work we do is kingdom work. And one day, this kingdom will be consummated. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord. <laughs> what a joy, what a motivation to continue on in this wonderful work that God has called to do. And so this charge has five imperatives. And I'm not going to go through all of this. I was given a charge, in fact, uh, Reminded again today and last week by someone preached for 20 minutes. So I'm under, I'm, I'm under charge here as well. I don't think it's good. Anyway, let's see. So there are five things that's mentioned here. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. You want to fulfill your ministry? It means preach the word. Proclaim it. Herald it. And the question is, why preach the word? Why preach the word? Why the Bible? <laughs> An important question is, how do we get the Bible? Is, is the Bible reliable? Can it be trusted? What does the Bible say about itself? What does the, how does the Bible testify about its own authority and uh, its, uh, its infallibility in fact? Well, Paul has already said something about the scriptures. All scripture is breathed out by God. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, the Bible, friends, is God's word to us. He breathed out the scriptures. The word is the breath of God to us, breathed out by God through the Holy Spirit. And we got the Bible, his word, through 40 plus authors over 1600 years. And there was an author that stood behind all these authors. And that author is God. And he has given this word. And so he says, preach the word. Preach it. It was Persian who said this. I would rather speak five words out of this book, the Bible, than 50,000 words of the philosophers. If we want revivals, we must revive our reverence for the word of God. If we want conversions, we must put more of God's word into our sermons. <laughs> Timely, isn't it? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a well-known preacher of the Westminster Chapel, London, said this. The most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church, it is the greatest need of the world also. So preach the word. Fulfill your ministry in preaching this word. And so, friends, for us today as well, if there is going to be a reformation, revival in the church, it must begin in the pulpit. Because as the pulpit goes, so goes the church. So goes the church. One writer puts it this way, you must sweat in the study and sweat in the pulpit. I mean, cold nights, we don't sweat easily on a cold night like this. In a pulpit here, but certainly I'm always nervous, always sweaty when you come on this place to preach. I'm sure every preacher will kind of agree with me, no matter 
how much of work you've done, and how much you've got this sermon in your heart and your head, and you come to preach this message, you always feel nervous. Well, I do anyway. And I'm thankful to God that this pulpit is quite kind of covered here, so you don't see anything that goes on behind. You see, that's the thing, isn't it? It's a tremendous, it's an awesome responsibility that everyone who preaches recognizes, because if not for the grace of God, a preacher cannot preach. You see, we move by grace. And Paul has reminded Timothy to stand strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we go from grace to preach the word of God. It was Persian who said, make your blood be blind. Right? Let it flow in your veins, the Bible. Let the word of God do its work in the preacher's life and in the years. It is said that at Martin Luther's dinner table, there were many conversations. I suppose Luther enjoyed talking, always around food, at his dinner table. <laughs> And uh, such conversations were, were, many conversations were held when the German reformer gave the following advice to a young minister. He said this, when you are to preach, speak with God and say, dear Lord God, I wish to preach in your honor. I wish to speak about you, glorify you and praise your name. Although I can't do this well of myself, I pray that you may make it good. Preach the word. Although I can't do this myself, you do it. Preach this word, you see. So fulfill your ministry, John, by preaching the word of God. Be ready to do it in season and out of season. The idea is to stand ready at all times and preach it, whether it is convenient or not. Whether you had a bad week in the office, the week that has gone by. Preachers, we know that, right, pastors? (laughs) You might have a shocking week during the week. But your congregation is waiting on Sundays. They are waiting for you to turn up. And what are they waiting for? Waiting for you to come up here and waiting for you to preach. No matter what week you've had, I know that. I've had sometimes ups and downs in, my, in the week that I face. But yet on a Sunday, we have to be here. In season and out of season. And preach This word of God, so that God ministers to you, the preacher, and God ministers to his people through you. And often, friends, at moments like that, when you feel as if you haven't preached the the way you want to preach, God is so gracious that if someone out there would say, Ah, I was really blessed by that message, Pastor. And you think, Oh, isn't that wonderful? God has been good. So preach it. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. I won't go into details there. It's a triple uh, close group of triple ministry that we have here. Reproving, rebuking is hard. Uh, it's not an easy task to correct someone. People don't like to be corrected. It's a tough gig. <laughs> it's a tough gig, right? One writer puts it this way. If you enjoy correcting and rebuking, you are likely not fit for the ministry. <laughs> there are some people who have the gift of correcting and rebuking, apparently. But if you do not do it, you're a shirker. If you do not do it, you're a shirker. But when you rebuke and correct, it must be done with great urging, complete patience and teaching, because this is part of fulfilling your ministry as well. So fulfill your ministry by preaching the word, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
Why should Timothy do this? The text is very clear there as well. We see that as we look in the next section. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away. So that's why Paul, Paul says to Timothy, do this. People will turn away from the truth. And let's keep moving on. And Paul grabs Timothy's attention when you come to verse 5 with an emphatic use of the pronoun you and gave him four instructions here. He says for Timothy, be sober minded. Keep your head when things are heating up. (laughs) Be cool in all circumstances. Young people, I look at the word be cool might be a different meaning for you, right? But be cool in all circumstances. Have a clear head. Be stable. Stay balanced. There may be times, and I'm not a prophet, John, so don't hold me on this one, when people and situations will throw you off balance. (laughs) Expect the unexpected, not just for John, but for all of us in life. There may be times when things are going to be really tough. When this happens... For all of us, it's a good point, isn't it, to remember to be stable, to be sober-minded, to have a clear head in all things. Saying, Lord, give me a clear mind. Help me to stay cool. Help me to stay calm. Help me to stay collected. Help me to keep a watch in what I say. I think uh, God is so gracious he has a sense of humor because I love debating people I love having a good challenge if I really need to and times when I want to really get into a good argument and a good debate I just need to count up to ten <laughs> because if I lose it I might lose a person I might lose a relationship and it can affect my ministry and my personal life my friendship with brothers and sisters in Christ It's not easy. I don't have it made. I don't think any any of us can claim that. But we are called to be sober-minded. Endure hardship. Expect suffering. Be prepared to go through suffering. Bear hardship patiently. Expect criticism. There will be moments of trials and testings when you may feel that you are all alone. Because the ministry can be a lonely place. Moments when you will be misunderstood. Paul Tripp in his excellent book, and I'm working my way through this book, confronting the unique challenges of pastoral ministry, dangerous calling, I was particularly reading this book, uh, preparation for this talk as well, speaks of times when we bring God into the court of our judgment and question his goodness, faithfulness and love. There are times when you just want to scream, Where are you God? Times when you want to say, Oh, What in the world are you doing, God, in this situation? Or perhaps you may feel God is asleep at the wheel. You know what Paul Tripp says? He says this. Rest in God's care is the result of a functional ministry shaping belief that he really does care. At street level, do you rest in God's care? Do you rest in God's care? When things happen, when you feel like screaming, rest in God's care. 
You see, people speak about performance reports for ministers. I think a minister gets a performance report every Sunday. <laughs> I think it's one person who gets a report every week. Don't you think so? Some of you in the workforce, you'll get a performance report maybe once a year. They'll call you to your office and the boss will say, okay, let's talk about where... I think ministers are evaluated every week. As we preach, as we do our ministry, that's performance. Everyone's got an opinion. If the sermon was too long, it's too long. If it's too short, it's too short. Everyone's got everything. He should have said this. Why didn't you look at the text this angle? Why didn't you do it this way? Everything is. Everyone's got an opinion, right? <laughs> you see what I'm saying, friends. We are evaluated, but mostly, primarily, we do our ministry because of God's call and his challenge in that work to do it. Fulfill your ministry. And as you so build into your ministry, John, I want to encourage you that you will put in coping mechanisms as well. Time out with Yvonne and the kids and family. This precious time for you. Time for your self-care. This is not the place to, to continue on on this. But I encourage you to do that. And when we meet together, I always ask John, have you had your Monday off? Looking after yourself. You can ask him. And, uh, because we want to encourage each other in gospel ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. Paul does not say that Timothy is an evangelist, but he says do the work of an evangelist. That is, friends, preach the gospel. Preach the good news. You see, the gospel is why we are here tonight. Is that right? <laughs> we haven't ordained John, and we are not here because this is some superstitious thing that we are doing. We are doing this thing because of the gospel. Because of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. The God who left the splendor of heaven came upon this earth. The Word became flesh, incarnate, lived a great and mighty and powerful, humble life, was nailed to the cross, crucified, died and was buried, and on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended to the Father at the right hand, seated at the right hand, interceding for his people, and will one day return. This is the Jesus that you and I worship. This is the great and awesome Savior. This is the good news. I won't be standing here if it's not for the gospel. I'm sure John won't be here. We're here because of what God has done for us in Christ. What a tremendous good news, friends. Do you know, I want to there's a challenge to you as well tonight. Do you know this Jesus? What does the gospel mean to you? What does the gospel mean to us? What is what Christ has done for us? Does it mean anything to you tonight? I want to encourage you to know that this awesome God has sent his son, his one and only son, to the cross, nailed and crucified, to forgive us, to reconcile us, so that all my sin is nailed to the cross and all his righteousness is credited to me. And I'm made right in the presence of God. Good news. Share the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says in Romans 1. It's the power of God. So as we conclude, fulfill your ministry. The fourth thing, but this is, I think, it has one, one writer puts it this way with those three words. All the imperatives are put together here. Fulfill your ministry. This is the summation of all the imperatives. Discharge your duties or fulfill your ministry. 
Let it be accomplished. It means fill it up. So coming back to the job description for a minister is a challenging one. The pastor has many hats to wear and expectations to meet and roles to fulfill. But we have seen the essentials of what it means to fulfill your ministry by preaching the word in season, out of season, reproving, correct, rebuking, exhorting with complete patience and teaching, be sober-minded, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill this ministry, recognizing that your life and my life is lived in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. He will appear one day, his kingdom will be established. And when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, he shall reign forever and ever. That's the goal. And so tonight, I want to encourage anyone here this evening, because this message is, yes, directed to John, but it is also applicable to all of us at another level as well. How are you fulfilling God's call in your life if you are a Christian here tonight, how are you fulfilling what Christ has given to you to do? So that one day, when the, you stand before the Lord, he will be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not good and successful servant, but well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it speaks to our hearts. We thank you for the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We pray tonight that you would help us to love you, Lord, and to serve you. We pray tonight that if there is anyone here who does not know Jesus who does not know the good news, the gospel, Lord, that tonight might be the beginning of a new journey of faith. We pray for those of us who know you, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to examine our lives in your presence, that we might fulfill the ministry, whatever that may be, that you have called us to do, as we seek to serve you, Lord, as gospel workers in this world. So, Lord, we pray your blessing upon each of us, and also upon John in particular, Lord, and Yvonne and the, and the family. In the name of Jesus. Amen.